I'm Cecilia Lay, and this is Fifth Emission. Today's episode is about how people are coping with the pandemic as the Delta variant surges. But before we get into it, I want to acknowledge that with the massive Dixie fire currently burning, we're now fully into fire season in Northern California. Stay up to date on the latest breaking fire news on the SF Chronicle app or by visiting sfchronicle.com slash wildfires. Our up-to-date interactive fire tracker is at sfchronicle.com slash fire map. Now back to the other big headline that's top of mind. It's been a tough couple of weeks for COVID news because of the Delta variant. From the re-mandate of masks in indoor public spaces to the growing trend of vaccine requirements by different employers and private businesses, it's clear that this pandemic will continue longer than we had hoped. All of this is causing a lot of stress, frustration, and anxiety in Bay Area residents. Earlier this week, Chronicle reporters went out into the field to talk to people about which public activities they feel comfortable with and how they're doing in general at this stage of the pandemic. There were a range of responses. You'll hear from some of them on today's episode. And to help us navigate some of the emotions bubbling up right now is Dr. Alyssa Eppel. She's a stress scientist and a professor at UCSF's Department of Psychiatry. She's also the co-author of the New York Times bestseller book, The Telomere Effect. Dr. Eppel also wrote a Chronicle op-ed in March of last year about how to cope with the pandemic just as it was starting. It was published the same week that most of the Bay Area issued shelter-in-place orders, and she returns now to talk about what coping looks like a year and a half later. Dr. Eppel, thank you so much for joining Fifth and Mission. Thank you so much, Cecilia. It's a pleasure to be with you. So last March, you wrote about how a healthy dose of anxiety can keep us safe during the pandemic. How would you describe the role of anxiety now, especially with this new surge, with the Delta variant and the reissuing of public health guidance like mask mandates? Mm-hmm. Well, it all seems like deja vu, right? So right. here we are facing our fourth wave when we thought that we would be feeling a return to normality. And we're just so far from that. It is still true that anxiety is a useful emotion and it's helping us in some ways. We are so burnt out and fatigued as a society that it's really hard to keep going out of our way and stay physically distanced and prevent us from travel and all of these things that we've been waiting to do. So the anxiety is actually playing a big role It's keeping us on edge and vigilant as we learn about new risks. We still are learning about situations that are safe or not safe with the new variants and figuring out how safe we are as a vaccinated person. So if we didn't have anxiety right now, I think the pandemic would be so much worse. And then another thing that you wrote in your same piece last March is that panic can make a pandemic worse. Do you think that panic has played a major role in the way we've managed COVID? Panic really has created some havoc. And at first it led to panic buying and catastrophic predictions of societal breakdown. So I think actually as a society, we're beyond panic about COVID. We're experts at living in a pandemic, whether we like that or not. We're worn out experts at this point, but we're still vigilant. So in this new landscape we have, it's more of a low-grade 
fear. And rather than the extreme state of panic, we are unfortunately having a level of societal fear that leads to othering, that leads to political division, polarization, and attitudes that are resistant to facts. So I think our problem is less panic today and more fear. You mentioned a low-grade fear and an emotion that's been heightened in the past couple weeks is anger, especially since the pandemic does seem to be dragging on longer than we'd like. And recently, we had Chronicle reporters go out into the field to talk to Bay Area residents about what activities they feel comfortable doing right now as the Delta variant continues to surge. And one of them spoke to Alfredo Sterlini from Union City. He refused the vaccine, and here he is explaining why because I felt all along that they were too much in a hurry. And uh, in the past, uh, the vaccines, uh, it would take years. And this was done just like that. And I didn't feel comfortable because of the speed that it took for the vaccine to be ready. So I'm a very spiritual person and uh, I believe in, uh, you know, God protecting me. There are a lot of people who would be really angry or frustrated with Alfredo. How do we manage those kinds of emotions? This whole pandemic has stirred quite a blend of strong emotions. And it's very easy to be angry at others for not taking precautions, for allowing COVID to spread and mutate. It's easy to be angry at our leaders for how things have been managed and this type of anger we're having is, is moral outrage. Mm. We feel together that things are immoral. They're not as they should be. And that's a particularly painful type of anger to live with. It's interesting to know that when we feel angry at other people who are seeing things differently, if you, if you get to listen to them, they're feeling true fear and anxiety, not necessarily a defiance or a political statement. And so it just makes me marvel about how strong and robust and complex these social and cultural influences are. We try as social scientists to understand how to change attitudes. And the fact is, we're just not good at it. There are also a lot of people who are frustrated with the split screen reality that Americans are refusing vaccines that people in other countries are desperate to have. We heard from Alex Manzo from Hayward, whose family is in the Philippines, for example. Where they're going back to, you know, they have to like stay at home yeah. for like another two weeks. Think about it. There's a lot of, unfortunately, there's a lot of Americans who doesn't believe in vaccination. Philippines and other like third world countries is very less fortunate yeah. of not, not having like a good resources. Americans complain too much. We're being spoiled, <laughs> unfortunately. It is frustrating to not be able to control other people. And just recognizing the limits of our control is important. So it's good to really identify the different strong feelings we're having and the triggers of them. We can notice what feelings are building up before they get intense. Anger doesn't just appear all of a sudden as an outburst, it's actually creeping up on us. Mm -hmm. So when we notice our feelings, label them, it's actually information for us. And it's often been said that when we have emotions, 
whether we're aware of them or they're in our body, they won't leave until their message has been heard. And mm-hmm. so that's partly why we rely so much on actually just recognizing and identifying the different emotions we have. And that allows them to become more constructive and to dissipate rather than hanging around in our body causing stress. You're listening to Fifth Emission, more with Dr. Eppel after a quick break. We're back with Dr. Eppel to discuss how we manage our fatigue and emotions a year and a half into the pandemic. Dr. Eppel, it seems like even if we're able to manage our own emotions and recognize them as they come up, it's challenging because the pandemic has made us realize how interconnected we are. Our health and behavior depends on how others are managing the pandemic. And that's another layer of difficulty. Absolutely. It's an amazing revelation of how deeply interconnected we all are. And that can be a feeling of power and social solidarity, as well as a feeling of moral outrage and injury when we're not walking in step together and we feel that we're being harmed by others' behavior. And I do think that recognizing what we control and what we can't is so important right now and deciding what we're going to do with all of this anger and emotion. What what part can we do in trying to create a better future? And that's part of this meaning making that is particularly important for our kids, for them to be part of the solution when they are seeing these societal problems. Meaning making seems really integral to emotional resilience. One of our reporters spoke to Marcia Forb, a housekeeper from Fremont, and she shared that her spiritual faith has helped her find purpose and gratitude even during these very challenging times. It's been different than any other year. (laughs) The only thing that made it wonderful for me, too, is, like I said, knowing that there's a great God and he's looking over us and he's keeping us and he loves us. If we never forget him, then and we remember him in our heart and then keep him in our minds, we're going to be all right. If we keep the prayers going up, we're going to be all right. We'll survive anything yeah. like that. Anything. Yeah. Dr. Apple, what's your advice in forming that kind of emotional resilience? Creating purpose and meaning in our lives is one of our most significant and important tasks today for our mental wellness, for our resilience. We really have a new world. We have a, a a new world of volatility and unpredictability. And that means we need a new world mindset. We actually need to build this mental preparedness that we haven't had before. Mm -hmm. So a mindset that can help is really to expect the unexpected, to embrace the uncertainty that we are living with, to actually just try to recognize that what we can be certain about is today is these moments. So let's make them as wonderful and meaningful as we can. Accepting some measure of ambiguity seems really important, but what about resignation? For example, there was Greg Bay, a teacher who's been struggling with teaching kids online for over a year. But when he spoke to one of our reporters, he seemed resigned to the fact that the rest of the year will just be 
really tough. I do want to go back to teaching. I, my only hesitation is just how safe it would be for me and my family members, because I do have some immunocompromised members in my family, so that's, that's the main thing I'm concerned about. So kind of accepted that this year would be like a non-travel kind of year, so I kind of mentally prepped that it would just be traveling locally at best kind of thing. So yeah, I'm not, I'm not super surprised. I'm just yeah. kind of accepting that this is probably how it's going to be for the rest of the year and hoping that next year will get better. So. Is resignation a healthy way to cope? If it helps you feel ease, then I think it's healthy. I would, wouldn't choose the word resignation, but more acceptance, acceptance of what we can't change. It is healthy if we're not feeling hopelessness as well. So as long as we're keeping a kind of robust hope that we will have a better future and we can be part of that. And that, that's really about our social fabric or the, the cultural evolution that we can make. And this is an amazingly potent time when we're rebuilding the fabric because it's no longer business as usual. I like that you make that distinction between resignation and acceptance. I, I also wonder if the difference with acceptance is that there still needs to be this measure of staying engaged in the issues, whereas resignation could just be passively letting the world sort of spin outside your window and not paying attention to it. It's a great distinction that you made. And for example, with the climate crisis, which is so salient in front of us every day now, there are a lot of people that care a lot and they might watch documentaries about it, but if they feel like they can't do anything about it, they're not part of the solution. They might as well be a climate denier. And so it's the actually feeling activated in some way and within our own domain of influence that is really what this life becomes about. You mentioned climate change. And this week, it seems like, you know, wildfire season is really kicking off. There's some huge fires burning at the moment. And what would you say to people who are just really exhausted. This will be our second pandemic and fire season with compounding disasters happening at the same time. How do we stay adaptable? I personally have tried to shift my work in the climate area. I think this ability for us to funnel our distress into the ways that we can be active and be a small part of the change is really the only answer. If we feel hopeless, it is a self-fulfilling prophecy. And if we can realize that we, we can transmit hope and just transmitting a robust hope about the future is actually creating change, pervasive change that we can't see. How do we stay creative about our strategies to cope with the pandemic, especially now that it's a year and a half later? You know, some of the things that I relied on personally to stay sane you know, setting up a good routine at home, going on hikes, those things just don't seem to work the same way anymore. And how do we adapt to finding new ways and strategies of managing all of this? Asking ourselves that very question is part of the answer. And getting out of the routineness of our life and the languishing. So during the workday, for example, taking breaks seriously because when we're working in place or working at home, of course, it's like a drain on the battery. Changing our context in different ways, like getting outside toward urban greenery or in nature, 
is still really important. It is important to just look at your goals, both in the near term and the long term. It's helpful when we can make easy, realistic goals that are short term because we are otherwise trying to achieve things in a pandemic that we don't have control for. So it's like keeping your motor on while you're stuck on idle. We know that the gas will eventually run out. That's not a good stance. So now it's about how can you start the day full and end the day full. Start Mm -hmm. the day by thinking about something you're grateful for. And really this comes down to so much to our attention. So there's a lot of things we can't do right now. There's a lot we can't have. There's a lot of grief and sadness. Mm -hmm. And so focusing our attention on something that we do have, something we're grateful for or someone we are grateful for creates a lot of positive emotion and shifts our frame toward a a healthier trajectory for the day. We can also do that before bed. And so I think the, the idea of like thinking about how we are sustaining ourselves through each day instead of depleting ourselves is really important. Self-care is still incredibly important. Dr. Apple, your research and work has been so illuminating for all of us, and I'm, I'm just so glad we had the opportunity to speak about it today. Thank you again. Thank you so much. It was wonderful to talk with you, Cecilia. Dr. Alyssa Eppel is a stress scientist and a professor at UCSF's Department of Psychiatry. You can learn more about her work by following her on Twitter. She's at Dr. underscore Eppel. That's E-P-E-L. The interviews you heard in today's episode was reported by Shwanika Narayan. Big thanks to her. Her story about how Bay Area residents are feeling at this stage of the pandemic, which she co-reported with other Chronicle reporters, is online now at sfchronicle.com. You can also find it on the Chronicle app. A very big shout out to Taya Francesca Price for producing this episode. And big thanks to you for listening.